Section 2 of Celebrated Crimes, Volume 7, Part 2, Countess de Saint-Geran by Alexandre Dumas, translated by George Burnham Ives. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Section 2 It came to pass, a fortnight after these events, that a mounted gentleman rang at the wicket gate of the Chateau de Saint-Geran at the gates of Moulin. It was late, and the servants were in no hurry to open. The stranger again pulled the bell in a masterful manner, and at length perceived a man running from the bottom of the avenue. The servant peered through the wicket, and, making out in the twilight a very ill-appointed traveller, with a crushed hat, dusty clothes, and no sword, asked him what he wanted. Receiving a blunt reply that the stranger wished to see the Count de Saint-Geran without any further loss of time, the servant replied that this was impossible. The other got into a passion. "'Who are you?' asked the man in livery. "'You are a very ceremonious fellow,' cried the horseman. "'Go and tell Monsieur de Saint-Geran that his relative, the Marquis de Saint-Maison, wishes to see him at once.' The servant made humble apologies and opened the wicket gate. He then walked before the Marquis, called other servants, who came to help him to dismount, and ran to give his name in the Count's apartments. The latter was about to sit down to supper when his relative was announced. He immediately went to receive the Marquis, embraced him again and again, and gave him the most friendly and gracious reception possible. He wished then to take him into the dining-room to present him to all the family. But the Marquis called his attention to the disorder of his dress, and begged for a few minutes' conversation. The Count took him into his dressing-room, and had him dressed from head to foot in his own clothes whilst they talked. The Marquis then narrated a made-up story to Monsieur de Saint-Geran, relative to the accusation brought against him. This greatly impressed his relative, and gave him a secure footing in the chateau. When he had finished dressing, he followed the Count, who presented him to the Countess and the rest of the family. It will now be in place to state who the inmates of the chateau were, and to relate some previous occurrences to explain subsequent ones. The Marshal de Saint-Geran of the illustrious house of Guiche, and governor of the Bourbonnais, had married for his first wife Anne de Tournon, by whom he had one son, Claude de la Guiche, and one daughter, who married the Marquis de Bouille. His wife dying, he married again with Suzanne des Epaules, who had also been previously married, being the widow of the Count de Longuenay, by whom she had Suzanne de Langouinet. The marshal and his wife, Suzanne des Epaules, for the mutual benefit of their children by first nuptials, determined to marry them, thus sealing their own union with a double tie. Claude de Guiche, the marshal's son, married Suzanne de Langouinet. This alliance was much to the distaste of the Marchioness de Bouille, the marshal's daughter, who found herself separated from her stepmother, and married to a man who, it was said, gave her great cause for complaint, the greatest being his threescore years and ten. The contract of marriage between Claude de la Guiche and Suzanne de Longuenay was executed at Rouen on the 17th of February, 1619. But the tender age of the bridegroom, who was then but eighteen, was the cause of his taking a tour in Italy, whence he returned after two years. The marriage was a very happy one, but for one circumstance. It produced no issue. The Countess could not endure a barrenness which threatened the end of a great name, the extinction of a noble race. She made vows, pilgrimages, she consulted doctors and quacks, but to no purpose. The Marshal de Saint-Geran died on the loth of December, 1632, having the mortification of having seen no descending issue from the marriage of his son. 
the latter now count de saint Geran, succeeded his father in the government of the bourbonnais and was named chevalier of the king's orders meanwhile the marchioness de bouille quarrelled with her old husband the marquis separated from him after a scandalous divorce and came to live at the chateau of saint Geran, quite at ease as to her brother's marriage seeing that in default of heirs all his property would revert to her such was the state of affairs when the marquis de saint maison arrived at the chateau he was young handsome very cunning and very successful with women he even made a conquest of the dowager countess de saint Geran, who lived there with her children he soon plainly saw that he might easily enter into the most intimate relations with the marchioness de bouille the marquis de saint maison's own fortune was much impaired by his extravagance and by the exactions of the law or rather in plain words he had lost it all the marchioness was heiress presumptive to the count he calculated that she would soon lose her own husband in any case the life of a septuagenarian did not much trouble a man like the marquis he could then prevail upon the marchioness to marry him thus giving him the command of the finest fortune in the province he set to work to pay his court to her especially avoiding anything that could excite the slightest suspicion it was however difficult to get on good terms with the marchioness without showing outsiders what was going on but the marchioness already prepossessed by the agreeable exterior of monsieur de saint maison soon fell into his toils and the unhappiness of her marriage with the annoyances incidental to a scandalous case in the courts left her powerless to resist his schemes nevertheless they had but few opportunities of seeing one another alone the countess innocently took a part in all their conversations the count often came to take the marquis on hunting the days passed in family pursuits monsieur de saint maison had not so far had an opportunity of saying what a discreet woman ought to pretend not to hear this intrigue notwithstanding the marquis's impatience dragged terribly the countess as has been stated had for twenty years never ceased to hope that her prayers would procure for her the grace of bearing a son to her husband out of sheer weariness she had given herself up to all kinds of charlatans who at that period were well received by people of rank on one occasion she brought from italy a sort of astrologer who as nearly as possible poisoned her with a horrible nostrum and was sent back to his own country in a hurry thanking his stars for having escaped so cheaply this procured madame de saint Geran a severe reprimand from her confessor and as time went on she gradually accustomed herself to the painful conclusion that she would die childless and cast herself into the arms of religion the count whose tenderness for her never failed yet clung to the hope of an heir and made his will with this in view the marchioness's hopes had become certainties and monsieur de saint maison perfectly tranquil on his head thought only of forwarding his suit with madame de bouille when at the end of the month of november sixteen forty the count de saint Geran was obliged to repair to paris in great haste on pressing duty the countess who could not bear to be separated from her husband took the family advice as to accompanying him the marquis delighted at an opportunity which left him almost alone in the chateau with madame de bouille painted the journey to paris in the most attractive colors and said all he could to decide her to go the marchioness for her part worked very quietly to the same end it was more than was needed it was settled that the countess should go with monsieur de saint Geran. 
She soon made her preparations, and a few days later they set off on the journey together. The Marquis had no fears about declaring his passion. The conquest of Madame de Bouille gave him no trouble. He affected the most violent love, and she responded in the same terms. All their time was spent in excursions and walks from which the servants were excluded. The lovers always together passed whole days in some retired part of the park or shut up in their apartments. It was impossible for these circumstances not to cause gossip among an army of servants against whom they had to keep incessantly on their guard, and this naturally happened. The marchioness soon found herself obliged to make confidants of the sisters Quinet, her maids. She had no difficulty in gaining their support, for the girls were greatly attached to her. This was the first step of shame for Madame de Bouille, and the first step of corruption for herself and her paramour, who soon found themselves entangled in the blackest of plots. Moreover, there was at the Chateau de saint Geron a tall, spare, yellow, stupid man, just intelligent enough to perform, if not to conceive, a bad action, who was placed in authority over the domestics. He was a common peasant whom the old marshal had deigned to notice, and whom the count had by degrees promoted to the service of Major Domo on account of his long service in the house, and because he had seen him there since he himself was a child, he would not take him away as body-servant, fearing that his notions of service would not do for Paris, and left him to the superintendence of the household. The Marquis had a quiet talk with this man, took his measure, warped his mind as he wished, gave him some money, and acquired him body and soul. These different agents undertook to stop the chatter of a servant's hall, and thenceforward the lovers could enjoy free intercourse. One evening, as the Marquis de Saint-Maison was at supper in company with the Marchioness, a loud knocking was heard at the gate of the chateau, to which they paid no great attention. This was followed by the appearance of a courier who had come post-haste from Paris. He entered the courtyard with a letter from the Count de Saint-Geran for the Monsieur le Marquis. He was announced and introduced, followed by nearly all the household. The Marquis asked the meaning of all this, and dismissed all the following with a wave of his hand. But the courier explained that Monsieur the Count desired that the letter in his hands should be read before everyone. The Marquis opened it without replying, glanced over it, and read it loud without the slightest alteration. The Count announced to his good relations and to all his household that the Countess had indicated positive symptoms of pregnancy that hardly had she arrived in Paris when she suffered from fainting fits, nausea, retching, and that she bore with joy these premonitory indications, which were no longer a matter of doubt to the physicians nor to anyone, that for his part he was overwhelmed with joy at this event, which was the crowning stroke to all his wishes, that he desired the chateau to share his satisfaction by indulging in all kinds of gaieties, and that so far as other matters were concerned, they remain as they were till the return of, the, of himself and the countess, which the letter would precede only a few days, as he was going to transport her in a litter for greater safety. Then followed the specification of certain sums of money to be distributed among the servants. The servants uttered cries of joy. The Marquis and Marchioness exchanged a look, but a very troublous one. They, however, restrained themselves so far as to simulate a great satisfaction, and the Marquis brought himself to congratulate the servants on their attachment to their master and mistress. After this they were left alone, looking very serious. While crackers exploded and violins resounded under the windows, 
For some time they preserved silence. The first thought which occurred to both being that the Count and Countess had allowed themselves to be deceived by trifling symptoms, that people had wished to flatter their hopes, that it was impossible for a constitution to change so suddenly after twenty years, and that it was a case of simulative pregnancy. This opinion gaining strength in their minds made them somewhat calmer. The next day they took a walk side by side in a solitary path in the park and discussed the chances of their situation. Monsieur de Saint-Maison brought before the Marchioness the enormous injury which this event would bring them. He then said that, even supposing the news to be true, there were many rocks ahead to be weathered before the succession could be pronounced secure. "'The child may die,' he said at last, and he uttered some sinister expressions on the slight damage caused by the loss of a puny creature without mind, interest, or consequence. Nothing, he said, but a bit of ill-organized matter, which only came into the world to ruin so considerable a person as the Marchioness. "'But what is the use of tormenting ourselves?' he went on impatiently. "'The Countess is not pregnant, nor can she be.' A gardener working near them overheard this part of the conversation, but as they walked away from him, he could not hear any more. A few days later, some outriders sent before him by the Count entered the chateau, saying that their master and mistress were close at hand. In fact, they were promptly followed by brakes and travelling carriages, and at length the Countess's litter was described, which Monsieur de saint Geran on horseback had never lost sight of during the journey. It was a triumphal reception. All the peasants had left their work and filled the air with shouts of welcome. The servants ran to meet their mistress. The ancient retainers wept for joy at seeing the Count so happy, and in the hope that this noble qualities might be perpetuated in his heir. The Marquis and Madame de Bouille did their best to tune up to the pitch of this hilarity. The Dowager Countess, who had arrived at the chateau the same day, unable to convince herself as to this news, had the pleasure of satisfying herself respecting it. The Count and Countess were much beloved in the Bourbonnais province. This event caused therein a general satisfaction, particularly in the numerous houses attached to them by consanguinity. Within a few days of their return, more than twenty ladies of quality flocked to visit them in great haste, to show the great interest they took in this pregnancy. All these ladies, on one occasion or another, convinced themselves as to its genuineness, and many of them, carrying the subject still further in a joking manner which pleased the countess, dubbed themselves prophetesses, and predicted the birth of a boy. The usual symptoms incidental to the situation left no room for doubt. The country physicians were all agreed. The count kept one of these physicians in the chateau for two months, and spoke to the Marquis of Saint-Maison of his intention of procuring a good midwife on the same terms. Finally, the dowager countess, who was to be sponsor, ordered at a great expense a magnificent store of baby linen, which she desired to present at the birth. The marchioness devoured her rage, and among the persons who went beside themselves with joy, not one remarked the disappointment which had overspread her soul. Every day she saw the marquis, who did all he could to increase her regret, and incessantly stirred up her ill-humour by repeating that the count and countess were triumphing over her misfortune, and insinuating that they were importing a supposititious child to disinherit her. 
As usual, both in private and political affairs, he began by corrupting the Marchioness's religious views to pervert her into crime. The Marquis was one of those libertines so rare at that time, a period less unhappy than is generally believed, who made science dependent upon atheism. It is remarkable that great criminals of this epoch, St. Croix, for instance, and Exili, the gloomy prisoner, were the first unbelievers, and that they preceded the learned of the following age, both in philosophy and in the exclusive study of physical science, in which they included that of poisons. Passion, interest, hatred fought the Marquis's battles in the heart of Madame de Bouille. She readily lent herself to everything that Monsieur de Saint-Maison wished. The Marquis de Saint-Maison had a confidential servant, cunning, insolent, resourceful, whom he had brought from his estates, a servant well-suited to such a master, whom he sent on errands frequently into the neighborhood of saint Jerome. One evening, as the Marquis was about to go to bed, this man, returning from one of his expeditions, entered his room, where he remained for a long time, telling him that he had at length found what he wanted, and giving him a small piece of paper which contained several names of places and persons. Next morning at daybreak, the Marquis caused two of his horses to be saddled, pretended that he was summoned home on pressing business, foresaw that he should be absent for three or four days, made his excuses to the Count, and set off at full gallop, followed by his servant. They slept that night at an inn on the road to Auvergne, to put off the scent any persons who might recognize them. Then, following cross-country roads, they arrived after two days at a large hamlet, which they had seemed to have passed far to their left. In this hamlet was a woman who practiced the avocation of midwife, and was known as such in the neighborhood, but who had, as it was said, mysterious and infamous secrets for those who paid her well. Further, she drew a good income from the influence which her art gave her over credulous people. It was all in her line to cure the king's evil, compound filters and love potions. She was useful in a variety of ways to girls who could afford to pay her. She was a lover's go-between and even practiced sorcery for country folk. She played her cards so well that the only persons privy to her misdeeds were unfortunate creatures who had as strong an interest as herself in keeping them profoundly secret. And as her terms were very high, she lived comfortably enough in a house her own property and entirely alone for greater security. In a general way, she was considered skillful in her ostensible profession and was held in estimation by many persons of rank. This woman's name was Louise Goyard. Alone, one evening, after curfew, she heard a loud knocking at the door of her house. Accustomed to receive visits at all hours, she took her lamp without hesitation and opened the door. An armed man, apparently much agitated, entered the room. Louise Goyard, in a great fright, fell into a chair. This man was the Marquis de Saint-Maison. "'Calm yourself, good woman,' said the stranger, panting and stammering. "'Be calm, I beg.' for it is i not you who have any cause for emotion i am not a brigand and far from your having anything to fear it is i on the contrary who am come to beg for your assistance he threw his cloak into a corner unbuckled his waist-belt and laid aside his sword then falling into a chair he said first of all let me rest a little the marquis wore a travelling dress but although he had not stated his name Louise Goyard saw at a glance that he was a very different person from what she had thought. 
and that, on the contrary, he was some fine gentleman who had come on his love affairs. "'I beg you to excuse,' said she, "'a fear which is insulting to you. You came in so hurriedly that I had not time to see whom I was talking to. My house is rather lonely.' i am all alone ill-disposed people might easily take advantage of these circumstances to plunder a poor woman who has little enough to lose the times are so bad you seem tired will you inhale some essence give me only a glass of water louise goyard went into the adjoining room and returned with an ewer the marquis affected to rinse his lips and said I come from a great distance on a most important matter. Be assured that I shall be properly grateful for your services. He felt in his pocket and pulled out a purse, which he rolled between his fingers. In the first place you must swear to the greatest secrecy. There is no need of that with us, said Louise Goyard. That is the first condition of our craft. I must have more express guarantees, and your oath that you will reveal to no one in the world what I am going to confide to you. I give you my word, then, since you demand it, but I repeat that this is superfluous. You do not know me. Consider that this is a most serious matter, that I am, as it were, placing my head in your hands, and that I would lose my life a thousand times, rather than see this mystery unraveled consider also bluntly replied the midwife that we ourselves are primarily interested in all the secrets entrusted to us uh, that an indiscretion would destroy all confidence in us and that there are even cases you may speak when the marquis had reassured her as to himself by this preface he continued i know that you are a very able woman i could indeed wish to be one to serve you that you have pushed the study of your art to its utmost limits i fear they have been flattering your humble servant and that your studies have enabled you to predict the future that is all nonsense it is true i have been told so you have been imposed upon what is the use of denying it and refusing to do me a service? Louise Goyard defended herself long. She could not understand a man of this quality believing in fortune-telling, which she practiced only with low-class people and rich farmers. But the Marquis appeared so earnest that she knew not what to think. Listen, said he, it is no use dissembling with me. I know all. Be easy. We are playing a game in which you are laying one against a thousand. Moreover, here is something on account to compensate you for the trouble I am giving. He laid a pile of gold on the table. The matron weakly owned that she had sometimes attempted astrological combinations, which were not always fortunate, and that she had been only induced to do so by the fascination of the phenomena of science. The secret of her guilty practices was drawn from her at the very outset of her defense. "'That being so,' replied the Marquis, "'you must be already aware of the situation in which I find myself. You must know that, hurried away by a blind and ardent passion, I have betrayed the confidence of an old lady, and 
violated the laws of hospitality by seducing her daughter in her own house the matters have come to a crisis and that this noble damsel whom i love to distraction being pregnant is on the point of losing her life and honor by the discovery of her fault which is mine the matron replied that nothing could be ascertained about a person except from private questions and to further impose upon the marquis she fetched a kind of box marked with figures and strange emblems opening this and putting together certain figures which it contained she declared that what the marquis had told her was true and that his situation was a most melancholy one she added in order to frighten him that he was threatened by still more serious misfortunes than those which had already overtaken him but that it was easy to anticipate and obviate these mischances by new consultations madame replied the marquis i fear only one thing in this world the dishonor of the woman i love is there no method of remedying the usual embarrassment of a birth i know of none said the matron the young lady has succeeded in concealing her condition it would be easy for her confinement to take place privately she has already risked her life and i cannot consent to be mixed up in this affair for fear of the consequences could not for instance said the marquis a confinement be effected without pain i don't know about that but this i do know that i shall take very good care not to practice any method contrary to the laws of nature you are deceiving me you are acquainted with this method you have already practiced it upon a certain person whom i could name to you who has dared to calumniate me thus i operate only after the decision of the faculty god forbid that i should be stoned by all the physicians and perhaps expelled from france will you then let me die of despair if i were capable of making a bad use of your secrets i could have done so long ago for i know them in heaven's name do not dissimulate any longer and tell me how it is possible to stifle the pangs of labor uh, do you want more gold here it is and he threw more louis on the table stay said the matron there is perhaps a method which i think i have discovered and which i have never employed but i believe it efficacious but if you have never employed it it may be dangerous and risk the life of the lady whom i love when i say never i mean that i have tried it once and most successfully be at your ease ah cried the marquis you have earned my everlasting gratitude but continued he if we could anticipate the confinement itself and remove from henceforth the symptoms of pregnancy oh sir that is a great crime you speak of alas continued the marquis as if speaking to himself in a fit of intense grief i had rather lose a dear child the pledge of our love than bring into the world an unhappy creature which might possibly cause its mother's death i pray you sir let no more be said on the subject it is a horrible crime even to think of such a thing 
but what is to be done is it better to destroy two persons and perhaps kill a whole family with despair oh madame i entreat you extricate us from this extremity the marquis buried his face in his hands and sobbed as though he were weeping copiously your despair grievously affects me said the matron but consider that for a woman of my calling it is a capital offence what are you talking about do not our mystery our safety and our credit come in first they can never get at you till after the death and dishonour of all that is dear to me in the world i might then perhaps but in this case you must insure me against legal complications fines and procure me a safe exit from the kingdom ah that is my affair take my whole fortune take my life and he threw the whole purse on the table in this case and solely to extricate you from the extreme danger in which i see you placed i consent to give you a decoction and certain instructions which will instantly relieve the lady from her burden she must use the greatest precaution and study to carry out exactly what i am about to tell you my god only such desperate occasions as this one could induce me to here she took a flask from the bottom of a cupboard and continued here is a liquor which never fails oh madam you save my honour which is dearer to me than life but this is not enough tell me what use am i to make of this liquor and in what doses am i to administer it the patient replied the midwife must take one spoonful the first day the second day two the third you will obey me to the minutest particular i swear let us start then she asked but for time to pack a little linen put things in order then fastened her doors and left the house with the marquis a quarter of an hour later they were galloping through the night without her knowing where the marquis was taking her the marquis reappeared three days later at the chateau finding the count's family as he had left them that is to say intoxicated with hope and counting the weeks days and hours before the accouchement of the countess he excused his hurried departure on the ground of the importance of the business which had summoned him away and speaking of his journey at table he related a story current in the country whence he came of a surprising event which he had all but witnessed it was the case of a lady of quality who suddenly found herself in the most dangerous pangs of labour all the skill of the physicians who had been summoned proved futile the lady was at the point of death at last in sheer despair they summoned a midwife of great repute among the peasantry but whose practice did not include the gentry from the first treatment of this woman who appeared modest and diffident to a degree the pain ceased as if by enchantment the patient fell into an indefinable calm languor and after some hours was delivered of a beautiful infant but after this was attacked by a violent fever which brought her to death's door they then again had recourse to the doctors notwithstanding the opposition of the master of the house who had confidence in the matron the doctor's treatment only made matters worse in this extremity they again called in the midwife 
and at the end of three weeks the lady was miraculously restored to life. Thus, added the Marquis, establishing the reputation of the matron, who had sprung into such vogue in the town where she lived and the neighboring country that nothing else was talked about. The story made a great impression on the company, on the account of the condition of the countess. The dowager added that it was very wrong to ridicule these humble country experts, who often through observation and experience discovered secrets which proud doctors were unable to unravel with all their studies. Hereupon the count cried out that this midwife must be sent for, as she was just the kind of woman they wanted. After this, other matters were talked about. The Marquis, changing the conversation, he had gained his point in quietly introducing the thin end of the wedge of his design. After dinner, the company walked on the terrace. The Countess Dowager, not being able to walk much on account of her advanced age, the Countess and Madame de Bouille took chairs beside her. The Count walked up and down with Monsieur de Saint-Maison, the Marquis naturally asked how things had been going on during his absence, and if Madame de saint Chiron had suffered any inconvenience, for her pregnancy had become the most important affair in the household, and hardly anything else was talked about. "'By the way,' said the Count, uh, "'you were speaking just now of a very skilful midwife. Would it not be a good step to summon her?' "'I think,' replied the Marquis, that it would be an excellent selection, for I do not suppose there is one in this neighborhood to compare her to. I have a great mind to send for her at once, and to keep her about the countess, whose constitution she will be all the better acquainted with if she studies it beforehand. Do you know where I can send for her? Faith, said the Marquis, she lives in a village, but I don't know which. But at least you know her name. I can hardly remember it. Uh, Louise Bouillard, I think, or Poillard, one or the other. How? Have you not even retained the name? I heard the story, that's all. Who the deuce can keep a name in his head, which he hears in such a chance fashion? But did the condition of the Countess never occur to you? It was so far away that I did not suppose you would send such a distance— I thought you were already provided. How can we set about to find her? If that is all, I have a servant who knows people in that part of the country, and who knows how to go about things. If you like, he shall go in quest of her. If I like, this very moment. The same evening the servant started on his errand, with the Count's instructions, not forgetting those of his master. He went at full speed. It may readily be supposed that he had not far to seek the woman he was to bring back with him, but he purposely kept away for three days, and at the end of this time Louise Goyard was installed in the chateau. She was a woman of plain and severe exterior who at once inspired confidence in everyone. The plots of the Marquis and Madame de Bouille thus throve with most baneful success, but an accident happened which threatened to nullify them and by causing a great disaster to prevent a crime. End of section two. Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia.